With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. All right, so welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. If you came here for talk of killer whales and uh, Obama's health care plan, you should uh, turn off, go to somewhere else on iTunes. This is a all tennis, all the time podcast. I'm James Martin, as ever, with Peter Bodo to my left and Steve Tigner to my right. And today we're going to turn it over to you guys, the listeners, and answer a bunch of uh, emails that we got from you guys. And the first one um, was about Maria Sharapova, the, the uh, reader, what is his or her name, Jamie Gander, wants to know, what do we think about Maria's recent win in Memphis? Does it mean that she's back? Does it mean anything good at all? And uh, just to kick off this question, guys, looking at Maria's uh, win, she went to Memphis, didn't go play Dubai, and she won the tournament without dropping a set, and, and she beat, most people probably won't know this, she beat Shania Perry in the first round, Bethany Matek. Elena Boktava, Petra Kivitova, is that how you pronounce it? Kivitova, and then the finals, Sofia Ardvison. Um So obviously not a murderer's row of players. Maria clearly was going to, a, to an event that uh, would give her an opportunity, clearly based on this draw, not to disrespect these players, but to give her an opportunity to get her game back in gear a little bit. Definitely a positive sign that she's... She's dropping down to a second-tier event and trying to to get her groove back, as it I were. Think, I, what think do you that's think? A, I think that's a smart move. It's not it's not Agassi level of going to the challengers, but it is going to a place where you know you can get some matches in, you know you can get some wins in. She didn't get anything in, in Australia, obviously. This was a chance to play tennis to get the feeling of winning again. Um, so I think that's positive. And even, even though she didn't beat anybody uh, intimidated or anybody in the top ten, just the... This, just the momentum of winning, I think, is a is a strong positive for her. Hey, all those girls can play. Kivitova, I think, actually is a very good player. I and mean, you know, look, a player's number one job is to win matches. Period. You know, uh, I think it was a very smart move of her to do this, and I kind of admire the fact that she did it. I mean, granted, she probably got a pile of money. They probably took all the guarantee money, put it just in a big lump, and, right. and put it in her suitcase for her. But you know what? I mean. She won matches. She's walking out of that confident, you know, walking out of there not having lost anybody. You know, she's got reason to hope now, and so she take it up from there. We'll see what she, where she plays next. She might, you know, she might be better off playing a couple more small tournaments. I, I actually have a lot of respect and admiration for doing this because I, I, I think in some ways, I mean, I see what you guys think, but I, th- I think in some ways playing an event like this where you clearly are the best player in the draw and you're essentially expected to beat everybody, kind of like when you're in the juniors and you're and you're you're playing your age division as the top seed, and you're, she loses to any of these girls, it's going to look really bad and much worse in a way than losing to a Serena or a Hennen. Um, so I, I think it was pretty gutsy to do that. Oh, there's al- yeah, there's always more pressure than you think in in just winning the matches you're supposed to win. And and I think as Pete, you're saying, you know, get those wins, get the momentum. She's she's currently uh, ranked, I believe, it's 13 in the world, 
so she's gonna she needs to get some of these 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 smaller tournaments. This will help raise a ranking, do the opposite of what the Williams sisters do, perhaps, and get that ranking back up where she can hopefully avoid, from her perspective, some tough fourth round and quarterfinal matches in the slams where. As of now, she could meet some really tough players. Well, Although it's kind of funny, that's almost you know it's almost become in the women's game, especially. It's, actually, it's true in the men's game too. It almost doesn't matter anymore. You know, in terms of the seedings, I mean, you know, one or two are important. You know, I guess you can argue three or four, but you know, really, you know, being anywhere in the top eight. I mean, if you're in the top eight now, look at the women's, look at the top eight women. You know, which of those girls would you rather play? Well, it, you know, it's kind of a pick 'em in some ways. Indian Wells will be the be the test for her because she's she's always done well there, mainly because the Williams sisters have always skipped it. She's she's had success there and yep. Justine will be there Kim will be there um, so we'll, we'll see how she is uh, in a few weeks all right the next question comes from someone just named Charles um, and it's good we don't hey, have his Chucky. La- yeah, hey Chucky because we don't have his, his last name because uh, you, you he wrote this let's let me read the question first and I'll I'll paraphrase because it's a bit of a long one but essentially Charles is asking do you guys think being a left-handed player is still an advantage at the pro level and he goes on to basically think that it is a huge advantage uh, to be a lefty on the Pro Tour. Now, full disclosure, I am a lefty. Peter Bodo is a southpaw, and Steve Tigner is a southpaw as well. So um, what do you got? I mean, I think this is BS. I looked at the rankings for the men, and there's two left-handed players on the in, in men's tennis right now in the top 10, Nadal, who is a natural right-hander, and Verdasco at 10. Well, it can't be as much of an advantage without serving and volleying. The main advantage that lefties had was the lefty serving to the ad court with very important points and to come in and follow that in. That's what um, McEnroe and Laver did. and Even Connors. And Connors. There was a period there where McEnroe and Connors were dominating the U.S. Open. They won a, lefties won a, a bunch of consecutive U.S. Opens, but no lefties won the U.S. Open since. The only advantage I can see is Nadal, is this very specific Nadal-Federer matchup, and that's only because Roger has a, has a one-handed backhand and Nadal can get his forehand into, into Roger's one-handed backhand. It, that's the only place I can see that you know you could say that there's a real advantage which means charles makes a very good point actually because you know uh if if, if that's the only place you know you have that advantage. i mean you don't really see that advantage so much on the doll serve although some people have argued that especially at the french open federer is you know sort of stubborn resistance to stepping around that backhand to hit the forehand mm-hmm. you know ha- had something I, to do I, with he's the way tried he that though he has tried to do that he's tried to step around and hit the it doll is amazingly accurate at getting getting the ball into his backhand and yeah. making it hard to step around that. yeah and it's yeah. funny but and it's not in a classic left-handed fashion a classic left-handed fashion is to get up and clean that line up close to the net and really stretch the guy wide and the doll is really more like he's throwing darts rather than this big sweeping banana right. you know uh Serve it like Beckham. <laughs> but he's great at hitting like the line, hitting the sideline. He's a, he's a master of that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked and disappointed, however, that you guys – I agree that there's that advantage with against Federer to a degree, but this just strikes me as just yet another person saying that, well, he's – Nadal is only as good as he is, and he's just better than most of the people because he's left-handed. No, that's I, not I th- true. But if you looked at Nadal lefty forehand to Federer's backhand matchup, that's that, a huge I agree, advantage. Yeah. But if – I mean, he's a competitor. I still think that – that you know, fact, I mean, that fact has changed history. If he's right-handed, has made a made an impact on the history of the game, though, and given Nadal a chance to beat a better chance of beating Federer than a lot of other guys. So if, if Nadal was right-handed, he w- he would he would not be beating Federer at the French. Uh, you just you don't know. I that's think, just I th- I th- you know that's pure speculation. That's just too much I th- speculation. I think you could make that argument. I mean, uh, I think the argument's makeable. I'm not sure I buy it, but I'd have to think about it. But let me ask. Let me put it this way, James. When was the last time you saw Verdasco play? You know anybody? And had the feeling, wow, you know, you know, he's a lefty. That's a big advantage for him. Well, he doesn't have that advantage against Federer. He doesn't. He doesn't exploit it. 
he doesn't have any kind of record right. against he doesn't, Federer. He doesn't have the skill to get the ball high up into his backhand consistently because he's too busy going for these lame brain, low percentage <laughs> winners down the line that <laughs> always miss when he, when he should be going for a safer shot. I mean, he's, he's an all right player, but he's not higher than he is because he's mentally not focused enough on the court. Now, Nadal um, is, Nadal is um, a great player, left-handed or right-handed, but he's great at using his, his advantages. Well, how about this for a general rule? The faster the court, the more the potential advantage for a left-hander. I don't, I don't buy it. I, I just, I, the I potential if they came to the net. Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah. You mean if they, well, if you well, go back to, to the, the days of certain ball. Yeah. Hey, hey Goran, Ivanis, Goran, Goran is a right-hander? Come on. Oh, would that serve, though? He would, what's the difference if you're Goran? And he didn't come to net that much. I mean, his volleys were – he bricked more volleys than most people. No, he was a baseliner for the most part. He was part. essentially a baseliner, two-handed backhand. Okay, the slight – it goes back to that thing. He, okay, he's going to pull you out as a right-hander in the deuce court instead of the ad court. So he doesn't have the advantage on break point, but he has the advantage on the 30-all and the deuce point. So, and with that delivery, do you – I would never in a million years think that if he was right-handed, he still wouldn't have been as intimidating as he was as a lefty, except that perhaps because you don't see lefties as much – it's a new look that takes a little bit of getting used to, but any good player is going to get used to that after a few games. Well, there was a golden age of lefties in the 70s and 80s, Laver, Navratilova, McEnroe, Connors. Um, but before that, there hadn't been a, a dominant uh, number of lefties, and there hasn't since. So you wonder whether it was an historical accident or whether it was just a time period when, when they were th that ability to serve and volley and use the, use the lefty serve had gave them an advantage that doesn't today. Well, considering know. lefties uh, die earlier than righties, I think they need to dominate tennis and, and, hey, and other aspects. What are you, you, you trying to say, man? <laughs> <laughs> and we have a shorter life expectancy right than righties. This <laughs> is a fact. Well, we dominate tennis righting because we've got Joel Drucker and Kamakshi Tandon as well, yeah, left-handers. This is right. Us. Yeah. Let, the, let our left. So that's something. <laughs> that's something. I'm not sure what that is, but that's something. All right, on to the next question, and that is uh, one that I'm going to feed right off to, to, to Bodo here because I know this is going to get him going, but – it came from somebody, I uh, don't have a name here, but anyway, shouldn't a guy like Roddick or any other big server swallow their pride and develop a change of pace underhand style chop serve that barely bounces to use once or twice in a match? I've always thought if you can hit a serve that barely bounces, it will make the returner think a lot more and bring them into a no man's land. And uh, obviously the two famous ones, Pete, of this were Chang hitting underhanded against Lendl at the French in 89, and then Hingis doing it against Graf in 99 at the French Open as well, getting the French crowds to, to piss and moan at him, which the French love to do. But um, you've always thought this is a legitimate tactic that people don't use. Well, Mr. Anonymous, first of all, let me say you're a genius. Second of all, I have been on his bandwagon for a long time. In fact, I'm thinking about on it by himself, right? You know, all by myself, unfortunately, but I'm thinking of I'm reviving it again, oh yet boy, again at, at the weblog, because it'll stimulate some discussion. But look, I mean... The underhand serve can be an enormous weapon. You've got guys standing 20 feet behind a baseline to take a, a serve from erotic or somebody like that these days. You cannot tell me that a person who works spends a half an hour a day hitting various weird chip, dink, slice, underhand, drop shot type serves is not going to be able to exploit that advantage in a match, especially at a key moment. The biggest impediment to it, and this is what this the guys are going to say to the other guys in the locker room that's for doing exactly it. right. This that's goes the back problem. to the roots of the game, and if there's a sense that somehow hitting an underhand serve is is kind of tricky and and not fair and unsportsmanlike, and that's crazy. It's like saying the backhand slice is unsportsmanlike. You know, I mean, why you, know, you could argue that let's man up and hit the backhand topspin every time. So no, I I think that's a very good point, and I guarantee you that sometime before too long. 
some coach out there is going to be teaching this to his talented little protege, and they're going to break through a barrier. It'd be worth it just for the publicity for that player. Yeah, but how, I mean, why, why single out Roddick? Why would Roddick give up his biggest advantage, maybe his only advantage as a, as a player, his serve, to hit an underhand serve? How many times could he do it in a match well, and, and he, be the effective? Re- the reader was just saying once or twice. I guess probably. On, I guess I'm assuming he meant go back here and look, but on critical points one or two times just to, let's say, you, you know, again, I'm so reading that into would, it. So, so that, to, get, to give the guy the benefit of the doubt, that guy would, the Roddick's opponent, opponent would, would then not be sure whether he was going to get an underhand serve and he would have to move forward? Well, always knowing that that could come, knowing that Roddick, I guess, is willing to do it. Um, and then it's a break point, let's say, 4, 5, 30, 40, and uh, he's thinking, well, this might be a time. Roddick used an underhanded serve in the last match I played him. He might do it here. He maybe he creeps in a I little bit, and Roddick decides to hit the big serve, and he doesn't have time to react. Or he does hit the underhanded serve uh, when the guy's standing three, four feet behind the baseline and catches him by surprise. I mean, I, I guess in that sense it's, it's possible, but it can only be used. It's not an easy serve to hit. It has to be incredible accuracy. It's like hitting a drop shot, a spinning drop shot wide on your serve. I mean, you spent you s- an hour a day since the time you were six years old. You can get pretty darn good at it, putting in a drop shot serve. And look, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think it should be used once or twice. I think it should be used whenever appropriate. That could be 50, 50 times during a match. If you've got a guy standing way back and you're winning points by drop shotting him, you keep drop shot serving him and if, you know, until he gets the messaging comes in. It, it is interesting that you can, hit a dro- you can hit 50 drop shots in a match and no one's going to, to you know, the French crowd or, or any fickle fans aren't going to, to blast you for not playing tennis the right way, not being manly or macho or whatever it is. But if you do this, and this is why I think no one will ever do it unless it's a u- unusual circumstance like those two matches at the French. I don't see anybody on the men's side, even if they're raised to try to hit some, just, just the, just the, the ridicule you're going to get. It's interesting that Chang, even not though he, he won that point against Lendl when he did, he never hit another underhand serve. He never tried it again. Even the guy who, who did it most famously and, and used it. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to know why he never even thought about trying it again. Not once. Well, There's the, a ridiculous stigma against it. Well, what did the Fre- went the French papers. I mean, he did a couple other things moving in to return the serve. What, what were they calling him, Trixie or? The trickster, yeah. Trickster. Yeah, like so. there's something and wrong worse. with that in sports. Right? Like there's worse. something wrong in being clever and tricky and having the other guy off balance. Well, Hingis was just, that was just a cop-out shot at the end of that match. That was just a, yeah, was just I'm out of here. I think that was a middle finger thrust up in the <laughs> yeah, air kind of at, at everybody. But, uh, you know, the, the, you know, it's it's kind of, a, it, it's a funny issue. But I think that's going to change. Just, I, I just keep seeing it. And, you know, it's it's not even a tactical thing in a way. I just, I see it as like an interesting comment on, the value structure in tennis and the idea of sportsmanship and all this other stuff. Well, how, how would you feel, you guys, if Federer, well, maybe he's not the best example because people don't stand as far back, but as Pete says, you know, the players are standing pretty much universally at least two, three feet behind the baseline, sometimes further like Nadal. Federer is up there on an important point and wins a point outright with an underhanded serve. What, what would you think about that? Bien joué. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely nothing unsporting about it. I don't know if that's the, that was the problem that the French had with those. There's, I think it was. Do whatever, you, I mean, do whatever you have to do to win a point. I guess it's just the, the manliness factor, the, mas- the, the macho factor, right? That's tennis, the is, uh, tennis is a man's <laughs> game, damn <laughs> yeah, it. Right. Come on. And let's not forget, the time to trot it out would not be the French Open. I mean, it's well, Steve's point, sure. what he said before, where you, know, you, know, you don't want to try that first underhand serve of your career in the semis of the French Open. You know, what you want to do is you want to come through the ranks. You've got to be playing junior tennis, and you've got to start using that shot and, and put everybody in notice saying, look, this is how I play. It's, with, it's well within the rules. 
Criticize me if you like, but this is what I'm going to do. You asked Andy about it once, right, Pete? I did, yeah. I, did. What I, did wrote, a, I wrote a column about this some years ago. You know, I, I don't remember. Once again, yeah. my memory fails me. Well, that's all right. We'll, we'll remind you of a few other things as we go along here, Pete. Um, we got a lot of emails about people saying that we were insulting uh, in comparing uh, Ivanovich with Kornikova. Uh, this woman here, Cher, Nikki or Nikki Cher, can't tell which, said that basically you were insulting Ivanovich and that we had no right in comparing the two and <laughs> I think people misunderstood a little bit. We weren't saying that. I mean, I guess people were thinking that we considered Kornikova uh, a I crappy player, which we weren't. I think the problem is when you mention Kornikova, it, it becomes, it's just, you think it's a joke. You think of her as a joke, and she wasn't. She was a good player. And she, you know, she had some of the same problems as, as Ivanovich, and it wasn't because she didn't work hard. I think we've talked about that before. And it wasn't because she wasn't talented. She was the number one junior in the world, and she happened to have not won a tournament she went she went downhill because of nerves she couldn't control her nerves during matches part of that was because of the extra pressure that was on her because of who she was you got that feeling when you watched her in singles she was completely different in doubles she was she was a great doubles player so comparing Ivanovich to Kornikova to me is not saying that that saying anything remotely horrible about Ivanovich. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's slightly critical. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to insult Nikki Share here, but I think you're revealing a prejudice here. You simply don't seem to like Anna Kornikova, which is fine. That's your prerogative. But you know, uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit ironic that you have such a viscerally strong reaction to Anna Kornikova, who was number eight in the world in singles and who won a couple of Grand Slam titles in doubles. And yet, you have no problem with Ivanovich, who's actually exploiting her own beauty and you know, sensuality or sex appeal, you know, uh, you know, maybe not in exactly the same way or quite to the same degree, but she, this girl's making hay while the sun shines with, with her physical assets and her attributes and, and her appeal. Attributes, so, very good. You know, you know, <laughs> you know if anything, these, these women are, are more alike in that regard than anything else. And, you know, you may not like, you know, you may prefer the style of one or the other or the nationality of one or the other, but, you it's know. It's almost uh, a, a Kornikova's extreme popularity or notoriety has hurt her in that way. She, because she was so, so, um, I guess. But she was very coy, and she wasn't very. Warm. I mean, you look at Ivanovich, and she's, she comes off as the girl next door in a way. She's very likable, smiling, and there's something kind of bubbly and and just generally friendly about her. I don't think Kornikova ever gave off the. She was very coy. She, you know, oh, my engaged to Enrique Iglesias. I'm not going to talk to you. I don't know what this ring is, and and just the way the the famous quotes of you know the boy supposedly asking her for a date at at the at the U.S. Open. Well, you can't afford me, and I think there was just a whole image, don't you, about. Kornikova it's true. Ivanovich is more genuine, and she's been the better player. She won the French Open. Kornikova well, was never I, close you know, to I that. I talked to Anna Kornikova the other day. First of all, she, she, she's mortified by some of the things she did. But look, she was a 17-18-year-old girl. Such as some of the things she said and some of the, the way she blew off some of these you know, requests for interviews. And I mean, I don't want to make this about the press because that's, you know, that, that's just... Well, we can't criticize ourselves. I mean, no, but, she's, but she, you know, she's, she's actually said... When, when, when it's brought up to her how she behaved at times and the things she said, she's like, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't believe it. You know, she was young. She was a kid. You know, you got to, you know, look at young Andre Agassi and look where Agassi is today. Anna Kornikova today is a very, very well-balanced, intelligent, smart woman who laughs about herself. She's friendly. She's open. You know, it, it, it's... She's is she married to Enrique? No. She's not married yet. Well, there but, you go. Uh, You've heard it here first. I think she does want to have kids, so we'll see how that works You think out. she does? I think she does. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, let's hope she's... Uh, well, I'll keep that joke to myself about her mom. That would be low, so I won't. But people that are listening will know the joke I was headed for. Um, another question came from Richard in Fresno, California. And he took notice of the fact that we were all talking pretty high on Kleisters going into Australia and for the whole year, and he wanted to know if we were reevaluating um, our thoughts on Kim 
uh, for the rest of the year, given that she did have difficulty well, in Australia. This is one of these situations where you where sports writers and, and pundits reevaluate how somebody's going to do with each match. That's right. right? It's <laughs> each, each what have you done? What have you done for me lately? Uh, yeah, you'd have to after the U.S. Open, you would have thought Kim Kleischer was going to win two Grand Slams this year, but after the Australian Open, you wonder if she's going to be consistent enough. But I think she's um, she's too good not to not to challenge for Grand Slams this year, no matter what happened in Australia. She's too. She's too much athletically gifted and, and a level above most of the rest of the tour. She, she did show that she, unlike Serena and unlike Justine, she does have a problem fighting through matches when things go wrong. She tends to rush. Justine and Serena each had, each had challenges at the Australian, and they, they, sort of, they survived them. Kim didn't, so you have to factor that you have to factor back into any evaluation of her. And, and the loss isn't a bad thing as far as, I mean, you got to lose and uh, you're not going to win every match, obviously. And, and I think it can maybe help her going into uh, the other slams that she's, okay, she's won the U.S. Open now. She's lost in a slam and now she can just focus again and, and really just, I think she can put that behind her pretty easily. And I still think her style of play over the long term, over this season and going forward is still going to be more effective than Hennon's. Obviously, everybody's talking about Hennon right now with her run to the finals of Australia. But Pete, I, th I think and I know you've made this point, I do think Kleister's style of play is going to, when, when we're sitting here in December, looking out at snow as we are doing today, uh, that she'll have had the better results. Well, you, you know, I mean, there's, she's one of those categories, I think Kim more and more uh, is continuing her original reputation as one of those players who always surprise you. When you think she's going to win, she ends up sort of crapping out, and if you think she, when you expect her to lose, she ends up coming up big. You know, she's kind of like the anti-Serena in a funny way, because she tends to, I think, yeah. maybe to, she's tended maybe to disappoint a little bit more in the past, where Serena has really, you know, been, been more positive in terms of what she's done in, in terms of what we expect. But, you know, I, I think you could, f I think it's fair to say that the French Open is still a little bit of unfinished business for Kim Kleisters. I really like her chances at the French. I think she's got a big, strong girl. She hits that big ball. She has a, you know, she hits with, with, with enough depth and spin so that she's going she's gonna to wear a lot of girls out at that tournament. I think she's going to win that tournament at some point, maybe not this year. But uh, I think she's got to be one of the favorites. So, I mean, we're obviously talking three, four months in advance here, so it's hard to pronosticate. But she's better on clay than Serena, at least, you know, on paper, or Venus, uh, or Hennon. Well, not Hennon, I guess. I mean, she's one more than obviously the. But I mean, other than Hennon, I guess she matches, I guess up she well matches well with her, the style of play. That's got to be a, a good better, tournament for her. She's better on paper, but the, I guess the Australian shows that Kim is Kim is surprising because she's she surprises you more because she's more she, she if she ha is having a bad day, she has a harder time getting out of it than than Serena or Justine. I mean, Serena will eventually, uh, right before she loses, will find a way to not lose, but. I, that's less likely with Kim. True. Well, you know, the other thing with the French there is going to be that there are going to be some, there are some powerful girls out there now who, act, who can actually give anybody a handful. I mean, the Azarenkas, even the Safinas and stuff, you know, there's, there's some girls that can, can really whack the ball pretty hard. But I like, I like Kim in those matchups. I like, I like Kim's, you know, basic physicality as a player. Yeah, well, I think we're going to learn a lot, obviously, in, in the next month, March, obviously, exciting month. We've got, um, you know, the two, the Master Series in Indian Wells and Miami, which will be good. And just going back real quick before we get to our last question, um, what do you think about Ivanovich stepping in here to play this? We have this exhibition in, in New York City, Madison Square Garden on Monday, the BNP Paribas something or other. Uh, Billie Jean King Billie Cup. Jean King Cup, excuse me, right near the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. And it's uh, Ivanovich has come in, and uh, obviously we know why she's been pulled in. She's a fan favorite, and that's all good. Um, but that serve, she's now got a new coach, which we actually should mention, which is uh, Steffi Graf's old coach, uh, Heinz Gunthardt. And um, 
What do we think about that? I mean, well, hopefully, it's be a tough place to serve in the garden if she ho- can't serve. Hopefully, she can use it as a as a way that's a little more relaxed. It's an exhibition to 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 do well with the serve to to play a little more relaxed and and get a little confidence and and maybe make herself believe that something good can happen on a tennis court. That's that's the only thing I could see happening for her, and I think it's a good place for her to to try that. I think Heinz is a great, great choice for her. Actually, I have a lot of respect for him. His coaching abilities has always been very. He was, he was always very low key. He never got a lot of credit with Steffi. But you know, Steffi, you know, is is a pretty independent person. But you know, uh, most of these top players, they're all, they're all of them are fairly high maintenance when it comes to coaching. He did a magnificent job with her. I think he's going to be a real, real asset to Ivanovic. He's a smart guy. Is he a, is he a, um, a taskmaster type? Pete, do you know? No, he's more of the psychologist type. He falls more into kind of like the, that Bob Breck category. Well, he'll look at a player and he'll just figure psychologically. That might be what, she, needs, what she needs. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. I think he'll know. Now, he's not a trickster. He's not going to like find manipulative things to do with her or anything like that, but he will challenge her. He's the kind of guy I'll challenge and say, you know, he'll say, look, why did you choose to do that instead of this on that point? And he'll want you to figure it out for yourself. He's a, he, He's kind of a real you know, kind of a real teacher. He's a pretty complicated thinker, right? You know, I don't know how that's going to work out because he's a, he's a pretty abstract, cerebral kind of a guy. Like a Todd Martin? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I just would listen to him with Djokovic. <laughs> I wonder how Djokovic sometimes knows what Todd's talking about. But. Well, exactly, and that's always a danger for coaches, frankly. You know, the, the old kiss rule, keep it simple, stupid, is, is, is always in effect for coaches. But I, I, I think a lot of Heinz, I think if she responds... You know, what, you know, what Joey's got to wonder, it's, it's always a two-way street. You know, people always look at the coaches and what they've done. But then you got to look at the player and how receptive the player is to coaching, to making changes, to absorbing new information. She's always struck me. Yeah, you get the feeling that she, that she does is. want to learn, right? Yeah. She had a good relationship with um, with Sven Groneveld when he, she was with the Adidas team and he was working with her then. They, they seemed to really be getting along fine. They did a lot of very specific targeted work, you know, with specific kinds of drills and exercises. You know, hitting a serve while you're walking to get yourself to reach up and stuff, and that was the point when she was really playing, playing well and and bringing a lot on her serve. So you know, maybe Heinz can kind of reinvent that. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it'll work. I mean, just as an armchair psychologist, it almost seems that what Ivanovic needs most is, and Steve, you alluded to this, is just to go out on the court, have fun, and not think so much about anything, and just go out, hit the ball, and 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 run and hit the ball, and and see what happens because she obviously has the strokes and the skills. Um, our last question uh, is from Arcana. And this person writes, and, I, and I w- this is one I wanted to bring up for you, Pete. It's directed directly at you. Um, in my opinion, Peter Bodo is very stubborn about his views. Who, me? <laughs> he is probably one in a million who think, still thinks Davis Cup format is fine the way it is. And I only bring that up, A, for a laugh so we can uh, call Bodo out for his stubbornness, but just to let all our listeners know that next week we will be previewing the big Davis Cup first-round tie between Serbia and the U.S. and taking a look at the other ties that are going on around uh, the world and uh, maybe enliven and revisit our, our uh, argument that we have ongoing here about whether Davis Cup is relevant. And uh, we'll also maybe review the uh, BNP, Billie Jean King Cup, if anything interesting comes of that. And until then, with Steve Tickner and Peter Bodo, I'm James Martin. Keep the questions coming in. We'll do another podcast next week with your questions. It is The email is podcast at tennis.com. Hey, you got it right that time. I did. It takes a few, right? All right, take it easy, guys. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.